And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy 620, or you're listening to the podcast or the archive of the show over at Investing Hope, uh, Apple, iTunes, uh, Google Play app, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show, A Conversation on Life with yours truly, Andrew Wood. So thank you so much for tuning in. We got a lot to talk about today, a lot of things going on in the world, uh, COVID news the convention is happening. Now, be honest with yourself. Now, I'm a political junkie. And somebody, I was talking on the phone yesterday with my dad. And yesterday morning, he said, are you going to watch the Democratic convention tonight? And I honestly said, I had no idea it was starting. Now, look, I'm, I'm conservative and, and uh, I have very strong opinions. But, but I typically watch all the conventions. I watch both sides and, and hear from everybody. Not the case. Not the case this year. I haven't really been tracking it. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're like me, and, and we've just, it's kind of exhausting. Uh, COVID is kind of taking over everything. I think for some, it's like, oh, there's an election happening. There's a presidential election. So in 2020, you have COVID. You have a presidential election. You have restaurants shutting down. You have businesses shutting down. You have schools not knowing how long they're going to meet. Are they going to meet and then have to close? I know that the county I grew up in, they, they've been going to school for just a few weeks and the high school's already closed now for two weeks because of uh, some positive cases and, and uh, another high school there in the county doing the same thing. So we got football starting this week, uh, high school football starting this week, but then we have other high schools here in the, in the area here in Knoxville at least that, that, that have had a couple positive cases and so they're going to actually cancel the first two weeks of their football season. So there's so much going on with, within our families, churches opening, not opening, are they virtual, not virtual, all these things happening. And on top of that, we have a presidential election. I mean, we're 75 days. Think about that, 75 days from uh, an election. I will say this. Last week, I talked about uh, Joe Biden, and I talked about how he hadn't named a vice presidential candidate yet. And, and I promise you, like five minutes after I got off the air, guess what he did? He named a, pres- a vice presidential candidate. And so what that means is on last week's show, if you were listening you probably thought, oh, Andrew's a dummy. He hasn't actually read the news. He doesn't know that the president has, or the, the, that Joe Biden uh, hasn't named his pick yet, but he did. He named his pick just a little bit after I went off air. So, so now we have it. We have the uh, President Trump, Vice President Pence, running against Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris. So that's who we have. I've been calling her Kamala. Apparently that's not how you say her name. Uh, it's Kamala. So... Uh, I think that's right, and so she's the VP pick, an interesting pick to say the least. It's who I pro- who I thought he was going to pick. I mean, if I'm honest, I, I think that kind of was the direction he was going to go. Uh, but but we'll see what happens. But last night, here's the interesting thing. Last night, the Democratic convention started. Now, but but here's the thing. Just like at Hope, and just like across the country, you've seen many people go virtual with their events. The Democratic convention went virtual. And one would think, okay, the Democratic Party, they have Hollywood is in their pocket. They have amazing producers. They have amazing creative minds. They have people that are amazing on, uh, with video and with streaming. You have YouTube people you could reach out to. You have social media people you could reach out to. You have media empires like CNN and, and all these other, MSNBC. You have these, these tools at your disposal. You have all of these resources. 
So you you got to think this is going to be an A1 produced event. This is going to be top notch. You think, look, all of these people are professional speakers. They speak in front of people all the time for a living. They're super comfortable with that. We've been going on now for about five or six months of virtual streaming. So everybody should be comfortable with that. We, we should have green screens in place or not. We should have everything. We should have the, the lighting perfect. We should have uh, the teleprompters on point. We should have the, all of that. But if you watched last night, Lord, Lord have mercy. It was not that. Some of it was, frankly, elementary. And so if you're, if you're a Republican and you're looking at what the convention is going to look like uh, for Republican politics in, in a couple weeks, or maybe even next week, again, I don't know when it is. I think it's coming up uh, soon. You've you got to think, oh, we've got to do better than that. I mean, it was really, really something. They had uh, a number of people speaking. They, they, uh, you know, they, they try their best to toe the line on uh, political correctness. And so when they actually played the national anthem. I'll give them credit for that. I was surprised they did that. But they said, please stand wherever you are or kneel, whichever you want to do, which I thought was an interesting take. Uh, then they, uh, they just did a number of things that were, that were interesting. One of those being they, they had Governor Cuomo speak. Now, if you've been listening to this show for the last few months, uh, I don't want to toot our own horn, but the reality is very few people across this country were saying a word about the horrible handling of the COVID crisis in New York, especially when it came to nursing homes and assisted living facilities. Very few media outlets, if any, were talking about Governor Cuomo putting a policy in place that said if a patient had COVID, they were to go back to the nursing home. They were to go back to assisted living facilities. The estimate right now, the, the New York is reporting around 6,000, 6 to 7,000 nursing home and assisted living patients died inside of those facilities with COVID. Now, other people are suggesting, other uh, reporters are suggesting it's closer to 11,000 people that died in the state of New York inside of assisted living and nursing homes with COVID. And so you can't tell me that the policy put in place at, the at that time by the governor forcing these, these uh, facilities to take back in patients with COVID didn't have something to do with that many deaths. Of course it did. New York, New Jersey, a lot of those northeastern eastern states, the epicenter of COVID. The epicenter. And I'll go into a little bit more of that here in a second. But, but I thought it was interesting. The governor spoke last night. He spoke last night, and there's an article over at National Review that kind of details what he had to say. But, and I want to go through that because this wasn't that long ago. This isn't as if... The governor is speaking about something that happened 10 years ago, and he's kind of uh, whitewashing it and making it sound better. This literally happened just a few months ago, and this is what, what occurred. So during the virtual Democratic National Convention last night, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo had the temerity to tell a national audience, this is what the governor said, quote, our way worked, and it was beautiful, end quote. The shameless and vulgar self-aggrandizing, which he's only able to get away with because of criminal lack of media scrutiny, didn't end there. 
As Cuomo went on to say things like this, quote, in many ways, COVID is just a metaphor and COVID is the symptom, not the illness, end quote. It's important to keep reminding Americans that there is no leader in the U.S. or anywhere in the free world, for that matter, who did a worse job preserving life than the governor of New York. Cuomo was late to enact preventative measure and also downplayed the virus, just like the president he criticizes. I can't think of a single instance in American political history when exhibiting this level of deadly incompetence has been given a pass. The illness, not the metaphor, killed 35,000 New Yorkers. It was Cuomo's personal mistake and executive order forcing nursing homes in his state to accept patients who tested positive for the coronavirus in March that sent thousands to their deaths. The AP puts the real number of nursing home deaths close to 11,000, more than the total fatality count in any state other than New Jersey. Beautiful indeed. Think about that. He said it was beautiful. He said it was a beautiful, the, the, the way they handled it was just beautiful. And at not one point, this is the frustrating part for me, not one point has he been called to the carpet by any of our media outlets, by any real journalist. They, they, they act as if we can't see these things with our own eyes. If I'm running the Democratic Convention, I, I would not have him sp- speak, especially not about the way things have been handled in the state of New York. Listen to these numbers. As of August 11th, 30 counties with the most COVID deaths account for 26% of cases in the U.S. and 43% of all deaths. 1% of the counties, representing 17% of the population, are responsible for almost half of our COVID deaths. 23 of the 30 counties are in the northeast corridor between Philly and Boston, all served by a railway system that runs through Manhattan. Now look, I get it. If there's going to be a pandemic, the places that are going to be hit hardest are your city centers. It's just the reality. You have New York City, you have public transportation, you have the vast majority of the populace there in New York taking public transportation, taking the subway. I have family that lives in New York City, does really well, but does not have a vehicle in New York City because people don't have vehicles in New York City. You take the the subway. You're living on top of each other. You're living in apartments, 900, 800 square feet apartments. So they can pack everybody in. You're going to your mailbox along with everybody else. You're getting on the same elevator. Everybody else is getting on. They didn't close the subways. Now, now one could argue they did the best they could. Maybe that's a, a legitimate argument. But calling the moves and the decisions made by the governor in New York beautiful, calling them a model for the country is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. And so you got to think of it from an independent voter, because let's be honest, there's, there's a segment of the population that 100% will vote for Joe Biden. There's nothing that's going to change their mind. Absolutely nothing will change their mind. And then there's a segment of the population that 100% is going to vote for Donald Trump. Nothing is going to change their mind. Literally nothing. 
we have folks on both sides like that. So elections are won with energy and with excitement. And so how do you rally the base? So there's some of your base that are like, look, I'm not going to go vote because I think they got it in the bag. But the, ultimately, elections are won with those kind of middle ground folks that are like, you know, sometimes I vote for the guy with the D beside his name. Sometimes I vote for the person with an R beside their name. Sometimes I vote third party. So if you're an independent voter, if your vote truly is up for grabs and you were watching that last night and you've been looking at the data, you've been looking at the news coverage, you've been looking at the deaths, you've been looking at the way things were handled in the state of New York and around this country. Are you listening to Governor Cuomo and go, oh, so New York's the model. New York's the model. So we should have been sending people back to nursing homes with COVID where we know the most vulnerable reside. We've known from the beginning this virus attacks the elderly worse than any population in our country, in the world. That's the segment. That's the demographic. Elderly. And in the state of New York, you have a governor that said, yeah, we know that, but we're going we're gonna to just send them on back to the nursing home, to the, to the assisted living facility. That's just one aspect. I, I, could, I could go through... Uh, more highlights or lowlights from last night. I'm not going to. But I did want to point that out because it's important that we not allow a narrative to be changed. We, we, we can't just believe what we see in a, in a virtual town hall or a virtual convention in this case. We have to look at the numbers. And the numbers say something very different. What happened in New York wasn't beautiful. The executive decisions made by the mayor there in New York City, de Blasio and governor of the state of New York, they weren't beautiful. They were wrongheaded. And we, we see that now. See it clearly. We'll talk more when we come back. Every time they say God, what I'm gonna go through, I'd be a millionaire. If I had a dollar for every time they say, God, what I'm going to come through, I'd be a millionaire. So as we continue the conversation, I just had a coffin fit because I've been drinking water and, you know, it went down the wrong pipe. I don't think it's not supposed to go in the lungs, I don't think, but that is exactly where it went. And so uh, I apologize if I sound like I just poured water down my lung because that's exactly exactly what I did. But as we, as we continue the conversation, we are, there, there's a lot to talk about. There's so much going on in the news that I want to get into, but, but I don't have the time here today. Uh, but one thing is the post office. Look, there's a lot of, lot of comments going on right now about the post office and, and mail-in voting and absentee ballots and, and all of these things. I will say this, absentee ballots are very different than, than mailing, mail-in voting. Uh, that's just true. Uh, there's a process that, that has been used for a very, very long time with absentee ballots uh, that, that would not be used in a similar way for just plain old mail-in voting. And, and so that's important to point out. Another thing I would point out is uh, the Congress, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, just the other day as they were working and trying to come to some type of uh, stimulus package, another stimulus package for the country, another coronavirus bill, uh, the, the president and, and folks were trying to get put in play and Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer were unable to come to agreements. 
uh, with Republicans. And so that stalled and that went nowhere. And then the president had to make some executive actions uh, for that. Uh, it's interesting that, to note that after that, those conversations broke, broke down, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, called the House into recess for one month during a pandemic. Now, I'm not going to give any uh, uh, takes or comments on that. I'm just going to let that sit. During a pandemic, unemployment numbers going up. We're, we're finally trying our best across the country to get back into some, into some kind of shape financially. And the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C., take a month break. Just, just let that sit for a second. They took a month off. Now, now, did they miss any paychecks? No. Now, they didn't miss any paychecks. But folks that are on unemployment trying to figure out the next steps, folks that, that are struggling right now, business owners that are struggling right now trying to, trying to make their, their ends meet and make, make next year's payroll or next month's payroll, make next month's uh, house payment. But the house took a month off. And then all this post office comments come up in the House. Nancy Pelosi comes out and says, we're going to come back into session. Because if we can't get funding for the post office, then people won't get their Social Security checks. I'm just going to put this out there, folks. This is news you need to know. We haven't mailed Social Security checks to recipients since 2013. The Speaker of the House an elected official with a lot of power got in front of TV cameras is quoted in Washington Post and other places of saying we got to be able to get Social Security checks to their recipients via the post office. And the reality is we haven't sent checks to people via the post office since 2013. I just think you should know that. I think the Speaker of the House should know that. And I think a journalist that is doing an interview should know that and do a little research before they go to print. So I just wanted to put that out there. What, right now, what I want to look at is uh, things that are going on concerning life. And, and look, the reason I'm talking about these things is because we are 75 days away from a presidential election. That's important. Now, some are going to tell you this is the most important presidential election of our lifetime. I would just make note. You're told that every four years, okay? So understand that. Four years from now, you'll be told this is the most important election of our lifetime. And four years ago, you were told this is the most important election of our lifetime. And eight years ago, you were told that. And 12 years ago and 16 years ago, you were told those things. The reality is the Lord is involved in all of this. And so as much as I do want to see policies put forward that, that I want and that, that I appreciate, the reality is the Lord is in control. And so I trust that. So am I going to say this is the most important election of my lifetime? I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say it's important. Every election is important. And one thing to note, as you look at the candidates, I think it's important. We talked about this last week. Vice President Biden uh, has completely shifted and is now far left when it comes to abortion. It's just the truth. And uh, Kamala Harris, far left when it comes 
to abortion. And so there's a piece over the National Review talking about this um, because late last week, more than 100 prominent pro-life Democrats signed a letter to the platform committee of the Democratic National Convention imploring the party to moderate its extreme stance on abortion. Several current and former Democratic politicians signed the letter, including Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, Minnesota Congressman Colin Peterson, Illinois Congressman Dan Lipinski, the last of whom was defeated in his March primary by a progressive challenger who focused her campaign on Lipinski's opposition to abortion. According to the letter, the uh, the, see, those that signed it consider themselves loyal members of the Democratic Party, citing their commitment to, quote, the democratic principles of equality, fairness, and democracy, end quote, and saying that they have committed their careers to advancing democratic ideals and policies. But they object to the party's increasingly radical positions on abortion policy, which they call, quote, radically out of line with public opinion, end quote, which is true. The letter notes that while most Democratic politicians support abortion on demand, about 80% of Americans do not. The letter doesn't mention another pertinent fact. According to Gallup, only 18% of Democrats support unlimited illegal abortion. The 2016 Democratic platform endorses taxpayer funding of abortion, opposed by a supermajority of the population. They write, the same platform endorses taxpayer funding of abortion in developing countries, opposed by three-fourths of the voters. We talked about that last week. Joe Biden has already come out and said he will get rid of the, um, the, the, the rules that are in place right now that, that prevent America from funding abortions around the globe. When Joe Biden becomes president, he said on the first day of office, the first day of office, he's going to start funding abortion around the world with your tax dollars. That matters. Similarly, dire statistics indicate that the Democratic platform on abortion contradicts not only the views of the average American, but also those of most Democrats. A 2018 survey from Ameris, Knights of Columbus, found that Democrats were almost evenly split on whether taxpayer dollars should fund abortion in the U.S. And in 2017, another poll uh, found that nearly three quarters of Democrats opposed taxpayer-funded abortion overseas. It is not without reason, then, that uh, those that signed this letter warned their party about alienating voters. In 389 out of 435 congressional districts, a majority of voters support a ban on abortion after 20 weeks. When Democratic leaders support late-term abortion, they push many voters into the arms of a Republican Party. Many people holding pro-life views are single-issue voters. That's true. I know a lot of them. Uh, On that last point, surveys have shown for quite some time that not only are they are there plenty of pro-life single-issue voters in the U.S., but also that those voters outnumber single-issue voters who consider themselves pro-choice. In other words, the intensity gap among these single-issue voters favor pro-life politicians. The letter also argues that the party's extreme stance contradicts its own stated values and, quote, violates, violates our commitment to inclusivity and diversity, end quote. They note that about a third of Democrats call themselves pro-life and argue that those voters must be respected and included. Again, this goes back to the big tent stuff. It's been said for a long time, the Republicans don't have a big tent. It's not big enough. You're not including. You're not inclusive. You're not including enough people. When Democrats come out constantly and, and say, if you are for any restrictions on abortion, you're not with us. Governor Cuomo has said, we don't want pro-lifers living in the state of New York. You're not welcome here. Doesn't sound like a big tent. But it's clear that on abortion, the extreme left-wing voices have the party's ear. 
Last summer, after decades of having supported conscious protections for pro-life Americans, then primary candidate Joe Biden flipped and embraced eliminating the Hyde Amendment, which currently forbids direct federal funding of elective abortion through Medicaid. And it goes on and on and on. Now, do you think this letter is going to make a difference? No. But the point is, they're attempting to change their party from within. And I can respect that. We'll talk more when we come back. Hey, all the world starts changing when the church starts So as we continue today, again, I'm pointing these things out because we are 75 days roughly away from an election. That matters. Uh, the, the policy uh, decisions matter. Party platforms matter. Words matter. Honesty, transparency matters when it comes to policies, um, especially when it comes to COVID. And, and this isn't said enough. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, right now on this. But the ripple effects that we are going to see, that we've already seen, because of decisions and policies that have been put in place because of a pandemic, uh, are going to be long-lasting. Long-lasting. I heard a number yesterday out of uh, uh, Bob Vanderplatz, who uh, is the president and CEO of the Family Leader out of Iowa. He was being interviewed in a national, um, on a national show and, and I had to rewind it because I, I thought there's no way he said what I think he just said. But he said in Iowa, in the state of Iowa, they've had 800 parents pull out and withdraw from the foster care system. 800. And he said the reason is because they didn't sign up and commit to virtual or social distance learning, homeschooling. Maybe they don't have the resources to do it. They don't have the ability to do that. 800 parents. That's a ripple effect from decisions put in place, decisions that are being made. And if that's happening in Iowa, that's not the only state that's going to happen. We haven't even scratched the surface of the ripples that we're going to feel because of some of the decisions that have been made. This is why elections matter. I was talking to a, a, a representative the other day, and I said, what this has shown is some people were ready for leadership, and some people weren't. You see, somebody put their, some, some people put their name in the hat to be voted for, and they just want the title. They want the power, but they're not ready for when the, when the vice gets a hold of them. When, when tough times come, they're, they're not ready for that time to, to lead. Now, we can look across the country, and we can look at places and go, they were ready. In my opinion, Governor Lee was ready. It's been rough. Has he made all the right decisions? No. But none of us would be able to. But I think truly he's done the best he could with what he has. And so there, there's places across the country we can look at and we could truly say, hey, they're a model. They're a model for what needs to be done. And then there's other places we can look at and go, they're a model for what is not to be done. You know, it's interesting. I, I have, I've worked in a lot of different areas. I've had a lot of bosses. I've had a lot of people be leaders around me. And, and I've always made mental notes of those that were leading me. 
And I, I've made mental notes and go, I love the way they handled this, that staff member in that particular area. I'm going to make a mental note of that. If I'm ever a leader leading an organization, leading staff, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. But I also made the middle notes of, of folks that, that led terribly. And I would say things to myself like, okay, note to self, never do that. Never say that. Never talk like that. Never have that, uh, create that environment within a workplace. You see, in the same way, we can look across the country and we can make middle notes and we can go, they did a good job. They, they, they made a good decision there. Oh, there they did not. There they missed the boat. And so it's important to look at those things. Uh, on this show, we have talked a number of times about the importance of intact families, the importance of the family structure. And why is that important? And, and what does that mean, not just from a biblical worldview, but what does that mean for society? What does that mean for culture? What does that mean for pro-lifeness? What does that mean for poverty? What does that mean for uh, literacy? What does that mean for high school dropouts? What does that mean for college degrees? What, and the list goes on and on and on. Intact families matter. And there's an article that I want to I put in front of you because it talks about the importance of that. They've actually done studies on this. And every study they've ever done on this points to the importance of the family structure. Now, there's a segment of, of folks in our country that would argue we need to get rid of the traditional family structure. Husband, wife, kids in the same home. There's some folks that would argue that is not the right model, that that's a model of patriarchy and that's a model of the, the days gone by. But the new model should be much different. But again, the study and the studies and the data support the opposite. And so Senator Mike Lee writes this. He says, among the many clear signs of the deterioration of American community and family life, one in particular stands out. Nearly half of all children will spend some time outside of an intact family by their late teens. As detailed in a recent report from the Joint Economic Committee's Social Capital Project, The Demise of the Happy Two-Parent Home, family stability has steadily deteriorated over the past 50 years. The trends this report documents are especially troubling because it is often America's most vulnerable who experience the greatest family instability today. Research cons consistently finds that children raised in an intact family have more positive outcomes than children who are not. A healthy, married parent's home provides children with stability and consistent access to the two parents who gave them life, as well as to the resources those parents provide, financial and otherwise. Now, now I want to preface this by saying, this doesn't mean you don't have outliers. It doesn't mean that, that somebody can grow up in a, in a family structure that looks different than this and be successful. Of course they can. But every data point has outliers. Every one of them. But, but that's the whole point of doing studies, is we want to get to the ideal. What's the ideal scenario? What's the ideal situation? What's the best scenario to prevent X, Y, and Z? Or what's the best scenario to make sure X, Y, and Z occurs? That's why we stu have studies. That's why we have data points. That's what policy should be made about and, found, and, and founded on. Research consistently finds, again, that... that that, that when raised in an intact family, they, children have more in, uh, positive outcomes than children who are not. But marriage rates in the U.S. have declined. Divorce increased, and the share of children born outside of marriage has climbed. 
For example, between 1962 and 2019, the percentage of women ages 15 to 44 who were married dropped from 71% to 42%. Over roughly this same period, the number of women aged 50 to 54 who had ever divorced increased from 29% to 41%. Furthermore, the fraction of children born outside of marriage climbed from just 5% to a staggering 40%. Trends in family stability are not the same across the board, however. There is a stark divide along economic lines. Highly educated Americans are far less likely to experience family instability than those with less education. For example, among mothers without a college degree, most births take place outside of marriage today, compared with just 20% of births among women with low or moderate education levels in 1970. In contrast, only about 10% of births to mothers with a college degree occur outside of marriage. Minorities are more likely to experience family breakdown as well. The stark socioeconomic divides in family stability raise the question of whether economic causes are to blame for family decline. Many researchers argue that declining wages among working-class men since the 70s have rendered such men less, quote, marriageable. But while the, the hourly wages of young men declined from the early 70s through the mid-90s, their wages have substantially increased since then. And yet this has not yielded increasing family stability. Moreover, the decline of family stability began prior to the 70s, when the American economy was booming, and the U.S. has experienced far more severe economic downturns in earlier eras, such as the Great Depression, without substantial disruptions to family stability. Instead of economic decline, the explanation for increased family instability may actually be rising affluence, which has loosened moral constraints around sex and marriage, placed a greater premium on personal fulfillment and professional pursuits, and increased the economic independence of women. These changes are not all inherently bad, but they do tend to weaken the family unit. And while the cultural changes facilitated by affluence have influenced everyone, today's unscripted relationship path filled with looser, more nebulous commitments is far riskier for those with fewer resources. While more affluent Americans have the motivation to avoid the pitfalls along the way to marriage, such as unwed childbearing, in order to keep an education and career on track, Americans with fewer resources do not have such opportunity costs. Government programs for low-income Americans also play a role in family instability. Today's government welfare system makes it much more feasible to raise a child outside of marriage, albeit still with greater challenge, than in past eras, making it less necessary for fathers to step up to provide for their children. On top of that, the government welfare system actually penalizes marriage, putting up barriers for lower-income couples to wed. Despite family breakdown, the majority of Americans see marriage and family as an important goal, even though fewer are reaching it. To strengthen America's families, an array of approaches will be needed, and all hands should be on deck to shore up this vital institution, particularly in communities where family instability is more prevalent. Congress should work to reduce marriage penalties and government welfare programs while experimenting with work requirements and time limits to encourage independence. States and communities can focus on making marriage and relationship education widespread, as Utah has done through its Healthy Marriage Initiative. Other approaches to strengthening marriage and the family could include media campaigns on the benefits of marriage, programs to prevent teen pregnancy, and state efforts to provide reconciliation options for couples on the brink of divorce. So, so that's where we are. We are living in a time where, where if you say that, I, I can imagine even some of my progressive friends hearing me say what I just said and looking at a study on intact families. I can, I can just imagine them looking at me and going, yeah, of course that's what you would say. 
Because people are scared to, to actually say the ideal situation is mom, dad, children at home. Because when you bring that up, they go, well, what about this? What about that abusive dad? Or what about that abusive husband? And she needed to get out. It, yeah, again, there's outliers. Look, my parents divorced. My mom remarried. I had step-siblings. I didn't grow up in the ideal family unit. And I did okay. But ideally, the scenario, the situation you want is husband, wife, children. In that order. Look, folks, these are, these are tough conversations. But if we want to get to a place where society and culture is sustainable, this is the sustainable model. Period. There's no other model out there that, that has had as much success with poverty, with literacy, with education, with success, with home ownership. There's no other model that points to all of those things than the family structure unit that we know in the West. Period. We'll talk more when we come back. So it's You see right through the mess inside me. And you call me out to pull me in. You tell me I could start again. And I don't need to keep on hiding. I'm fully known. So look, when we have conversations about being pro-life and, and anti-abortion and all of those conversations, the reality is we also want to create a, an environment and a context within society and within culture that would prevent an unplanned pregnancy. That doesn't mean that married couples don't have unplanned pregnancies. They certainly do. What it means is we want to create an environment that even if an unplanned pregnancy were to happen, you feel like you are in a place and being supported to take care of the baby. So my wife and I were married for five years, I think, before we were pregnant with our first child. Now, we were trying to get pregnant. We wanted to get pregnant. We wanted to have a child. But we were at a place in our life that, that even if it were unplanned, and the reality was, after the first one, it just kind of happened every two years. They weren't necessarily planned. We were okay with having kids. But we were at a place that even if one of those came up unplanned, even if we're like, oh my gosh, we're pregnant? Really? That we were okay because we have created a, a structure within our family, within our family unit, to prepare for that. Look, that may not be politically correct to say, but the reality is that is the ideal scenario. And so what we've created instead is a mindset that says you don't have to be married. Is a mindset that says uh, women say I don't need a man. Men saying I don't need a woman. Yet they still want to lay down with each other. And so, so you have one saying I don't need a man and you have one saying I don't need a woman and then you have a baby going but I need mom and dad. So what happens? Because I need both of you. I know that y'all don't want each other, 
but, but I need both of you. And so we, we find ourselves in these scenarios and in these situations over and over and over again. And then, and then we start to pull away from, from valuing an intact family. Why would we devalue that? Now, now I understand that some people might, might talk about it and then it, it almost shames those that find themselves unmarried. It almost shames those that are single. Now, now we shouldn't wrap it in that language, certainly not. But the ideal scenario is an intact family. I mean, it, it just is. And so what are we going to do with that knowledge? You know, you, you know, a lot of people are right now during COVID season are talking about studies and science, and you can't be anti-science, and the science says this. Folks, the science says... Best case scenario for children is living in the home with their mom and dad. Period. That's what the science says. That's not some whack right-wing Christian saying it. That's not some uh, pro-life group just putting that info out there. The science says that's the best. And you know what else says it? uh, You can look at uh, family after family, even super progressive, super left-wing, super liberal families. Best case scenario, mom, dad, children at home, period. So real life illustrates that. Science illustrates that. The Bible illustrates that. The church illustrates that. Society and culture should also illustrate that. And so it, I don't know why it's going against the grain to say that in 2020, but that's where we are. And hopefully, we can make a change. Because if we don't, I mean, what are we doing? The church should be leading the way with this. That's what we try to do at Hope, is talk to those moms, those dads, in those very, very difficult situations and circumstances, and call them to something greater. Call them to something higher than what society and culture would have would set the bar so low. Call them to something higher. Call yourself to something higher. We'll talk to you next week. I'm fully known love by you You won't let go now No matter what I do And it's not one or the other It's our truth Ridiculous grace to be known, fully known, in love by you. I'm fully known.